Chapter 15, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 15, Part 1 The Eschatological Question. Bibliography Timothy Colani. Jesus Christ and the Messianic Beliefs of His Time, Strasbourg, 1864, 255 pages. Gustav Volkmar, Jesus the Nazarene and the Beginnings of Christianity with the Two Earliest Narrators of His Life, Zurich, 1882, 403 pages. Wilhelm Weifenbach, Jesus' Conception of His Second Coming, 1873, 424 pages. Wilhelm Baldensperger, The Self-Consciousness of Jesus in the Light of the Messianic Hopes of His Time, Strasbourg, 1888, Second Edition, 1892, 282 pages, Third Edition, Part 1, 240 pages. Johannes Weiss, The Preaching of Jesus Concerning the Kingdom of God, 1892, Göttingen, 67 pages, second revised and enlarged edition, 1900, 210 pages. So long as it was merely a question of establishing the distinctive character of the thought of Jesus, as compared with the ancient prophetic and Danielic conceptions, and so long as the only available storehouse of rabbinic and late Jewish ideas, was Lightfoot's Horiae, Hebraicae, et Talmudicae, in Quatuor Evangelistas, it was still possible to cherish the belief that the preaching of Jesus could be conceived as something which was, in the last analysis, independent of all contemporary ideas. But after the studies of Hilgenfeld and Dillman had made known the Jewish apocalyptic in its fundamental characteristics, and the Jewish pseudepigrapha were no longer looked on as forgeries, but as representative documents of the last stage of Jewish thought, the necessity of taking account of them in interpreting the thought of Jesus became more and more emphatic. Almost two decades were to pass, however, before the full significance of this material was realized. It might almost have seemed as if it was to meet this attack by anticipation that Colani wrote in 1864 his work, Jesus Christ and the Messianic Beliefs of His Time. Timothy Colani was born in 1824 at Lemay, studied in Strasbourg, and became pastor there in 1851. In the year 1864, he was appointed professor of pastoral theology in Strasbourg, in spite of some attempted opposition to the appointment on the part of the Orthodox party in Paris, which was then growing in strength. The events of the year 1870 left him without a post. As he had no prospect of being called to a pastorate in France, he became a merchant. In consequence of some unfortunate business operations, he lost all his property. In 1875, he obtained a post as librarian at the Sorbonne. He died in 1888. How far was Jesus a Jew? That was the starting point of Colani's study. According to him, there was a complete lack of homogeneity in the messianic hopes cherished by the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, 
since the prophetic conception according to which the kingdom of the messiah belonged to the present world order and the apocalyptic which transferred it to the future age had not yet been brought into any kind of unity the general expectation was focused rather upon the forerunner than upon the messiah jesus himself in the first period of his public ministry up to mark chapter eight had never designated himself as the messiah for the expression son of man carried no messianic associations for the multitude his fundamental thought was that of perfect communion with god only little by little as the success of the preaching of the kingdom more and more impressed his mind did his consciousness take on a messianic coloring in face of the undisciplined expectations of the people he constantly repeats in his parables of the growth of the kingdom the word patience by revealing himself as the lord of this spiritual kingdom he makes an end of the oscillation between the sensuous and the spiritual in the current expectations of the future blessedness he points to mankind as a whole not merely to the chosen people as the people of the kingdom and substitutes for the apocalyptic catastrophe an organic development by his interpretation of psalm one ten in mark chapter twelve verses thirty five through thirty seven he makes known that the messiah has nothing whatever to do with the davidic kingship it was only with difficulty that he came to resolve to accept the title of messiah he knew what a weight of national prejudices and national hopes hung upon it but he is messiah the son of man he created this expression in order thereby to make known his lowliness in the moment in which he accepted the office he registered the resolve to suffer his purpose is to be the suffering not the triumphant messiah it is to the influence which his passion exercises upon the souls of men that he looks for the firm establishment of his kingdom this spiritual conception of the kingdom cannot possibly be combined with the thought of a glorious second coming for if jesus had held this latter view he must necessarily have thought of the present life as only a kind of prologue to that second existence neither the jewish nor the jewish christian eschatology as represented in the eschatological discourses in the gospels can therefore in kalani's opinion belong to the preaching of jesus that he should sometimes have made use of the imagery associated with the jewish expectations of the future is of course only natural but the eschatology occupies far too important a place in the tradition of the preaching of jesus to be explained as a mere symbolical mode of expression it forms a substantial element of that preaching a spiritualization of it will not meet the case therefore if the conviction has been arrived at on other grounds that jesus's preaching did not follow the lines of jewish eschatology there is only one possible way of dealing with it and that is by excising it from the text on critical grounds the only element in the preaching of jesus which can in kolani's opinion be called in any sense eschatological was the conviction that there would be a wide extension of the gospel even within the existing generation that gentiles should be admitted to the kingdom 
and that in consequence of the general want of receptivity towards the message of salvation, judgment should come upon the nations. These views of Kolani furnish him with a basis upon which to decide on the genuineness or otherwise of the eschatological discourses. Among the sayings put into the mouth of Jesus which must be rejected as impossible are the promise in the discourse at the sending forth of the twelve, the imminent coming of the Son of Man, from Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, the promise to the disciples that they should sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, the saying about his return in Matthew chapter 23, verse 39, the final eschatological saying at the Last Supper, from Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, Quote, the papius-like chiliasm of which is unworthy of Jesus, close quote, and the prediction of his coming on the clouds of heaven with which he closes his messianic confession before the council, the apocalyptic discourses in Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, and Luke chapter 21 are interpolated. A Jewish-Christian apocalypse of the first century, probably composed before the destruction of Jerusalem, has been interwoven with a short exhortation which Jesus gave on the occasion when he predicted the destruction of the temple. According to Kolani, therefore, Jesus did not expect to come again from heaven to complete his work. It was completed by his death, and the purpose of the coming of the Spirit was to make manifest its completion. Strauss and Renan had entered upon the path of explaining Jesus' preaching from the history of the time by the assumption of an intermixture in it of Jewish ideas. But it was now recognized, quote, that this path is a cul-de-sac, and that criticism must turn round and get out of it as quickly as possible, close quote. The new feature of Kolani's view was not so much the uncompromising rejection of eschatology as the clear recognition that its rejection was not a matter to be disposed of in a phrase or two, but necessitated a critical analysis of the text. The systematic investigation of the synoptic apocalypse was a contribution to criticism of the utmost importance. In the year 1882, Volkmar took up this attempt afresh, at least in its main features. His construction rests upon two main points of support, upon his view of the sources and his conception of the eschatology of the time of Jesus. In his view, the sole source for the life of Jesus is the Gospel of Mark, which was, quote, probably written exactly in the year 73, close quote, five years after the Johannine Apocalypse. The other two of the first three Gospels belong to the second century, and can only be used by way of supplement. Luke dates from the beginning of the first decade of the century, while Matthew is regarded by Volkmar as by Vilka, as being a combination of Mark and Luke, and is relegated to the end of this first decade. The work is, in his opinion, a revision of the gospel tradition, quote, in the spirit of that primitive Christianity, which, while constantly opposing the tendency of the apostle of the Gentiles, to make light of the law, was nevertheless so far universalistic that, starting from the old legal ground, it made the first steps towards a Catholic unity. Once Matthew has been set aside in this way, 
the literary elimination of the eschatology follows as a matter of course. The much smaller element of discourse in Mark can offer no serious resistance. As regards the messianic expectations of the time, they were, in Volkmar's opinion, such that Jesus could not possibly have come forward with messianic claims. The messianic son of man, whose aim was to found a super-earthly kingdom, only arose in Judaism under the influence of Christian dogma. The contemporaries of Jesus knew only the political idea of the messianic king, and woe to anyone who conjured up these hopes. The Baptist had done so by his too fervent preaching about repentance and the kingdom, and had been promptly put out of the way by the Tetrarch. The version found even in Mark, which represents that it was on Herodias's account, and at her daughter's petition that John was beheaded, is a later interpretation, which, according to Volkmar, is evidently false on chronological grounds, since the Baptist was dead before Herod took Herodias as his wife. Had Jesus desired the messiahship, he could only have claimed it in this political sense. The alternative is to suppose that he did not desire it. Volkmar's contribution to the subject consists in the formulation of this clean-cut alternative. Kolani had indeed recognized the alternative, but had not taken up a consistent attitude in regard to it. Here, that way of escape from the difficulty is barred which suggests that Jesus set himself up as Messiah, but in another than the popular sense. What may be called Jesus's messianic consciousness consisted solely, quote, in knowing himself to be firstborn among many brethren, the Son of God after the Spirit, and consequently feeling himself enabled and impelled to bring about that regeneration of his people, which alone could make it worthy of deliverance, close quote. It is, in any case, clearly evident from Paul, from the Apocalypse, and from Mark, quote, the three documentary witnesses emanating from the circle of the followers of Jesus during the first century, that it was only after his crucifixion that Jesus was hailed as the Christ, never during his earthly life. Close quote. The elimination of the eschatology thus leads also to the elimination of the messiahship of Jesus. If we are told, in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, that Simon Peter was the first among men to hail Jesus as the Messiah, it is to be noticed, Volkmar points out, that the evangelist places this confession at a time when Jesus' work was over and the thought of his passion first appears. And if we desire fully to understand the author's purpose, we must fix our attention on the Lord's command not to make known his Messiahship until after his resurrection, from Mark chapter 8 verse 30, chapter 9 verses 9 and 10, which is a hint that we are to date Jesus' messiahship from his death. For Mark is no mere naive chronicler, but a conscious artist interpreting the history, sometimes indeed a powerful epic writer in whose work the historical and the poetic are intermingled. Thus, the conclusion is that Mark, in agreement with Paul, represents Jesus as becoming the Messiah only as a consequence of his resurrection. He really appeared, and his first appearance was to Peter. When Peter, on that night of terror, fled from Jerusalem to take refuge in Galilee, Jesus, according to the mystic prediction of Mark chapter 14, verse 28, 
and chapter 16, verse 7, went before him. Quote, he was constantly present to his spirit, until, on the third day, he manifested himself before his eyes, in the heavenly appearance which was also vouchsafed to the last of the apostles, as he was in the way. And Peter, enraptured, gave expression to the clear conviction with which the whole life of Jesus had inspired him in the cry, Thou art the Christ. The historical Jesus, therefore, founded a community of followers without advancing any claims to the messiahship. He desired only to be a reformer, the spiritual deliverer to the people of God, to realize upon earth the kingdom of God which they were all seeking in the beyond, and to extend the reign of God over all nations. Quote, the kingdom of God is doubtless to win its final and decisive victory by the almighty aid of God. Our duty is to see to its beginnings. That is, according to Volkmar, the lesson which Jesus teaches us in the parable of the sower. The ethic of this kingdom was not yet confused by any eschatological ideas. It was only when, as the years went on, the expectation of the parousia rose to a high pitch of intensity that, quote, marriage and the bringing up of children came to be regarded as superfluous, and were constantly thought of as signs of an absorption in earthly interests which was out of harmony with the near approach to the goal of these hopes. Close quote. Jesus had renewed the foundations on which the family was based, and had made it, in turn, a cornerstone of the kingdom of God, even as he had consecrated the common meal by making it a love feast. In most things, Jesus was conservative. The ritual worship of the God of Israel remained for him always a sacred thing. But in spite of that, he withdrew more and more from the synagogue, the scene of his earliest preaching, and taught in the houses of his disciples. Quote, he had learned to fulfill the law as implicit in one highest commandment and supreme principle, therefore in spirit and in truth. But he never, as appears from all the evidence, declared it to be abolished. We may be equally certain, however, that Jesus, while he asserted the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments, never explicitly declared that of the Mosaic Law as a whole. The absence of any such saying from the tradition regarding Jesus made it possible for Paul to take his decisive step forward. As regards the gospel discourses about the parousia, it is easy to recognize that, even in Mark, these quote, are one and all the work of the narrator, whose purpose is edification. He connects his work as closely as possible with the apocalypse which had appeared some five years earlier, in order to emphasize, in contrast to it, the higher truth. Jesus' own hope, in all its clearness and complete originality, is recorded in the parables of the seed growing secretly, and the grain of mustard seed, and in the saying about the immortality of his words. Nothing beyond this is in any way certain, however remarkable the saying of Mark chapter 9 verse 1 may be, that the looked-for consummation is to take place during the lifetime of the existing generation. Quote, it is only the fact that Mark is preceded by the book of the birth and history of Christ according to Matthew, not only in the scriptures, 
but also in men's minds, which were dominated by it as the first gospel, which has caused it to be taken as self-evident that Jesus, knowing himself from the first to be the Messiah, expected his parousia solely from heaven, and therefore with or in the clouds of heaven. But since he who was thought of as by birth the Son of God is now thought of as the Son of Man, born an Israelite, and becoming the Son of God after the Spirit only at his baptism, the hope that looks to the clouds of heaven cannot be, or at least ought not to be, any longer explained otherwise than as an enthusiastic dream. If even at the beginning of the eighties a so extreme theory on the other side could, without opposition, occupy all the points of vantage, it is evident that the theory which gave eschatology its due place was making but slow progress. It was not that anyone had been disputing the ground with it, but that all its operations were characterized by a nervous timidity, and these hesitations are not to be laid to the account of those who did not perceive the approach of the decisive conflict, or refused to accept battle, like the followers of Reus, for instance, who were satisfied with the hypothesis that thoughts about the last judgment had forced their way into the authentic discourses of Jesus about the destruction of the city. Even those who, like Weifenbach, are fully convinced that, quote, the eschatological question, and in particular the question of the second coming, which in many quarters has up to the present been treated as a touch-me-not, must sooner or later become the battleground of the greatest and most decisive of theological controversies. Even those who had shared this conviction stopped halfway on the road on which they had entered. Weifenbach's work, Jesus's Conception of His Second Coming, published in 1873, sums up the results of the previous discussions of the subject. He names, as among those who ascribe the expectation of the parousia, in the sensuous form in which it meets us in the documents, to a misunderstanding of the teaching of Jesus on the part of the disciples and the writers who were dependent upon them. Schleiermacher, Bleek, Holtzmann, Schenkel, Kolani, Bauer, Hasse, and Meyer. Among those who maintained that the parousia formed an integral part of Jesus' teaching, he cites Keim, Weizsacker, Strauss, and Renan. He considers that the readiest way to advance the discussion will be by undertaking a critical review of the attempt to analyze the great synoptic discourse about the future in which Kolani had led the way. The question of the parousia is like, Weifenbach suggests, a vessel which has become firmly wedged between rocks. Any attempt to get it afloat again will be useless unless a new channel is found for it. His detailed discussions are devoted to endeavoring to discover the relation between the declarations regarding the second coming and the predictions of the Passion. In the course of his analysis of the great prophetic discourse, he rejects the suggestion made by Weisse in his Evangeline Fraga of 1856, that the eschatological character of the discourse results from the way in which it is put together, that while the sayings in their present mosaic-like combination certainly have a reference to the last things, each of them individually in its original context might well bear a natural sense. In Kolani's hypothesis of conflation, the suggestion was to be rejected that it was not Ur Marcus, 
but the author of the synoptic apocalypse who was responsible for the working in of the little apocalypse footnote the english reader will find a constructive analysis of what is known as the little apocalypse in encyclopedia biblica it consists of the verses matthew chapter twenty four verses six through eight verses fifteen through twenty two verses twenty nine through thirty one and verse thirty four corresponding to mark chapter thirteen verses seven through nine verses seven through twenty verses twenty four through twenty seven and verse thirty according to the theory first sketched by colani these verses formed an independent apocalypse which was embedded in the gospel by the evangelist End footnote. it was an unsatisfactory feature of weizsacker's position that he insisted on regarding the little apocalypse as jewish not jewish christian fliederer had distinguished sharply what belongs to the evangelist from the little apocalypse and had sought to prove that the purpose of the evangelist in thus breaking up the latter and working it into a discourse of jesus was to tone down the eschatological hopes expressed in the discourse because they had remained unfulfilled even at the fall of jerusalem and to retard the rapid development of the apocalyptic process by inserting between its successive phases passages from a different discourse weifenbach carries this series of tentative suggestions to its logical conclusion advancing the view that the link of connection between the jewish christian apocalypse and the gospel material in which it is embedded is the thought of the second coming this was the thought which gave the impulse from without towards the transmutation of jewish into jewish christian eschatology jesus must have given expression to the thought of his near return and jewish christianity subsequently painted it over with the colors of jewish eschatology in developing this theory weifenbach thought that he had succeeded in solving the problem which had been first critically formulated by keim who is constantly emphasizing the idea that the eschatological hopes of the disciples could not be explained merely from their judaic presuppositions but that some incentive to the formation of these hopes must be sought in the preaching of jesus otherwise primitive christianity and the life of jesus would stand side by side unconnected and unexplained and in that case we must give up all hope quote, of distinguishing the sure word of the lord from israel's restless speculations about the future when the jewish christian apocalypse has been eliminated we arrive at a discourse spoken on the mount of olives in which jesus exhorted his disciples to watchfulness in view of the near but nevertheless undefined hour of the return of the master of the house in this discourse therefore we have a standard by which criticism may test all the eschatological sayings and discourses weifenbach has the merit of having gathered together all the eschatological material of the synoptics and examined it in the light of a definite principle in colani the material was incomplete and instead of a critical principle he offered only an arbitrary exegesis which permitted him for example to conceive the watchfulness on which the eschatological parables constantly insist as only a vivid expression for the sense of responsibility quote, which weighs upon the life of man and yet the outcome of this attempt of weifenbach's 
which begins with so much real promise, is in the end wholly unsatisfactory. The authentic thought of the return, which he takes as his standard, has for its sole content the expectation of a visible personal return in the near future, quote, free from all more or less fantastic apocalyptic and Jewish Christian speculations about the future, close quote. That is to say, the whole of the eschatological discourses of Jesus are to be judged by the standard of a colorless, unreal figment of theology. Whatever cannot be squared with that is to be declared spurious and cut away. Accordingly, the eschatological closing saying at the Last Supper is stigmatized as a, quote, Kiliastic Capernaitic, close quote, distorted of a normal promise of the Second Coming. The idea of the Paligenesia, or Restoration, from Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, is said to be wholly foreign to Jesus' world of thought. It is impossible, too, that Jesus can have thought of himself as the judge of the world, for the Jewish and Jewish-Christian eschatology does not describe the conduct of the last judgment to the Messiah. That is first done by Gentile Christians, and especially by Paul. It was, therefore, the later eschatology which set the Son of Man on the throne of his glory, and prepared, quote, the twelve thrones of judgment for the disciples, close quote. The historian ought only to admit such of the sayings about bearing rule in the messianic kingdom as can be interpreted in a spiritual, non-sensuous fashion. In the end, Weifenbach's critical principle proves to be merely a bludgeon with which he goes seal-hunting, and clubs the defenseless synoptic sayings right and left. When his work is done, you see before you a desert island strewn with quivering corpses. Nevertheless, the slaughter was not aimless, or at least it was not without result. In the first place, it did really appear, as a byproduct of the critical processes, that Jesus' discourses about the future had nothing to do with an historical prevision of the destruction of Jerusalem whereas the supposition that they had, had hitherto been taken as self-evident, the prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem being regarded as the historic nucleus of Jesus' discourses regarding the future, to which the idea of the last judgment had subsequently attached itself. Here, then, we have the introduction of the converse opinion, which was subsequently established as correct namely, that Jesus foresaw indeed the last judgment, but not the historical destruction of Jerusalem. In the next place, in the course of his critical examination of the eschatological material, Weifenbach stumbles upon the discourse at the sending forth of the Twelve in Matthew chapter 10, and finds himself face to face with the fact that the discourse which he was expected to regard as a discourse of instruction was really nothing of the kind, but a collection of eschatological sayings. As he had taken over, along with the Markan hypothesis, the closely connected view of the composite character of the synoptic discourses, he does not allow himself to be misled, but regards this inappropriate charge to the Twelve as nothing else than an impossible anticipation and a bold anachronism. He knows that he is at one in this with Holtzmann, Kolani, Bleek, Skolten, Meyer, and Keim, who also make the discourse of instruction end at the point beyond which they find it impossible to explain it, 
and regard the predictions of the persecution as only possible in the latter period of the life of Jesus. To express Weifenbach's view in the words of Keim, quote, for these predictions are too much at variance with the essentially gracious and happy mood which suggested the sending forth of the disciples, and reflect instead the lurid gloom of the fierce conflicts of the latter period and the sadness of the farewell discourses. It was a good thing that Bruno Bauer did not hear this chorus. If he had, he would have asked Weifenbach and his allies whether the poor fragment that remained after the critical dissection of the charge to the twelve was a discourse of instruction, and if, in view of these difficulties, they could not realize why he had refused thirty years before to believe in the discourse of instruction. But Bruno Bauer heard nothing, and so their blissful unconsciousness lasted for only a generation longer. The expectation of his second coming, repeatedly expressed by Jesus towards the close of his life, is on this hypothesis authentic. It was painted over by the primitive Christian community with the colors of its own eschatology, in consequence of the delay of the parousia, and in view of the mission to the Gentiles, a more cautious conception of the nearness of the time commended itself. Nay, when Jerusalem had fallen, and the signs of the end which had been supposed to be discovered in the horrors of the years sixty-eight and sixty-nine had passed without result, the return of Jesus was relegated to a distant future by the aid of the doctrine that the gospel must first be preached to all heathen. Thus the parousia, which according to the Jewish Christian eschatology belonged to the present age, was transferred to the future. Quote, with this combination, and making coincident, they were not so at the first, of the second coming, the end of the world, and the final judgment, the idea of the second coming reached the last and highest stage of its development. End of chapter 15, part 1